Please take your Bibles and turn with me again to Luke's Gospel, the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 3. As we return to learn about our friend John the Baptist, John who was the forerunner to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and was uh, quite direct about this fact, as we're going to see this morning up close. So Luke chapter 3, and we're going to read uh, verses 15 through 20 this morning. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Before almost every sporting event, at least at a professional level, there is some kind of broadcaster, some kind of PA announcer who will let the people know that, as they say at the Olympic games that the games are about to begin they will say it's football time or it's time to play ball or let's get ready to rumble and this broadcaster comes and speaks and tells you it's time for the competition to start now it would be surprising if nonetheless amusing if this broadcaster this person with the microphone instantly turned and grabbed the ball or put on a set of boxing gloves and started to compete against whoever might be up there next to him. You'd be really surprised by this. It might make for a viral video. It might make for one of the most memorable stories of your life, but it's not really who you're there to see. You don't want to see the guy with the microphone running down the field trying to catch a football or trying to hit a ball or trying to run a race or trying to punch somebody or duck a punch for that matter. You're there for someone else, someone else who is better at that, someone else who is supposed to be competing at that, someone else that you paid money to watch. So it is with John. And John understood his place. John understood his role. John knew that the people were not there to watch him. They weren't there to hear him. And so it is that later in his life, John said in reflecting what his proper understanding of his role was, when speaking about Jesus, he must increase, but I must what? Decrease. John knew there would be a time when Jesus would come onto the scene and would take over and that John would need to get out of the way. And he did not... Uh, despise this responsibility. He didn't balk at the lesser role that he would have. He rejoiced as a bridegroom, uh, as, the, uh, as the best man does for his bridegroom, to see this person exalted in their proper place. John tells these things to the crowd. And we find in this passage John's place 
in the nation. John's place in preparing for Jesus to come. John came into Israel preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We saw in verse 3. He was there to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And he was there to preach repentance. And last time we were together, we considered what that meant. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? And what does that look like down in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? Well, all of John's activity and all of his preaching makes the people start to wonder, is this the guy that we've all been waiting for? And John directly and clearly tells them in no uncertain terms, I am not the Christ, but instead there's someone else coming after me. And he is the one that I'm here to announce. And that's what we're going to learn about in this passage. We're going to learn about John's preparatory role for Jesus. His place in preparing for Jesus. And it's summarized for us in this text, verses 15 through 20, by three activities that characterized his public ministry. Three activities that characterized his public ministry. And so we begin in verses 15 through 17 by looking at John's promotion of the greater one to follow. John's promotion of the greater one to follow. Just as there are those in other events who promote people, there are agents, there are promoters for musicians, for entertainers. Uh, there's even a specific term for promoter among, uh, in the boxing world. John so also was a promoter of the greater one to follow. Now the people were theorizing Something different about John. They thought that John might be the Christ. And we find this in verse 15. The people were in a state of expectation. He's got the crowds buzzing. John is the one who has done this. And the reason why they're in this state of expectation is not only because they have this centuries-long expectation of the Messiah coming, but because something is happening here. It's clear that God has sent this man, John. Everyone recognizes it. Everyone recognizes that the baptism of John is from God. And this is not just some kind of man popping up to do his own thing. They all know this. And so they have this long-standing expectation, and then you have this man, this prophet, all this excitement is building around, and they're going, maybe something's going on. And so they're all wondering in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. They're ready for someone to come. Maybe all of this is exactly the time. And so they ask, is this him? Well, it was an incorrect guess to posit that it was John. But they weren't so far off on the general idea, were they? Because they knew something was going on and they were right. The Messiah was about to come. But it wasn't John. And John wants to make sure that they know this. Now, in other places, John is even more direct than here in answering their question. For example, in John 1, 19 and 20, it says this. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. That's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? He didn't deny, but he confessed. Twice, John says he confessed. John the apostle who wrote that says that he says, I am not the Christ. Later, after Jesus began his own ministry, but before John went into prison, in John 3.28, he said this, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Here in the events in Luke 3, John doesn't directly say here that he is not the Christ or even whether the coming one is the Christ. But his answer makes it very clear by implication that these things are, in fact, the case. And so John basically says he is about to come. Now, 
at this point, he doesn't identify exactly who this Christ is. Who is this person who is the Christ? He doesn't call him by name. He doesn't say he's Jesus. He doesn't say he's right over there right now. At this point, he just talks about the fact that someone else is coming. And he says, let me tell you a little bit about him. And so John exalts this coming one. And he does so in telling us three things about him. First of all, he is mightier than John. He is mightier than John. Verse 16, John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. Just a general statement about the strength of the coming one and in comparison to John. Now, this is saying something because John is a pretty strong person. John is a pretty bold person. And John has a lot to commend him. In fact, Jesus will say later on that among those born to women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. No one is greater in the kingdom of heaven than John the Baptist. And yet John here says that this coming one is mightier than him. And there are, of course, many ways that we could consider that Jesus is mightier than John. He is wiser. He is more able to save. He is actually able to save. He's going to do a number of miracles. There are things that he is going to do. And in fact, ultimately, it will result in him overcoming death by being raised from the dead. Jesus is, in fact, mightier than John. But he doesn't get into specifics at this moment. He's just content to say he is greater than me, first of all, because he is mightier than me. Secondly, he tells us about Jesus that he is more worthy than John. He is more worthy or more noble. So he says, I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. Now notice here he doesn't say that he is incapable of doing this. John has the capacity to untie sandals, presumably. Now maybe he's not very good with knots, and that's also the case that he can't untie them, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that he is not worthy of doing this. That's a really, really strong statement because if you understand who it was who normally did this, then you know that this was the job generally, or one of the jobs, of a slave. That someone might not even untie their own. If they had Uh, If they had a slave, they would not untie their own sandals. They would walk into the home or wherever it was, and they would have their shoes removed for them. This is a pretty lowly occupation. Can you imagine walking in in our day and just standing in the room and waiting for someone and say, hey, tie my shoes or untie my shoes because I don't even want to have to bend over to do that. I don't want to get my hands dirty for my own shoes. This is quite a lowly position. And John says, uh, I actually am not even worthy of filling that role when it comes to him. That's how lowly and unworthy I am. And it's not John intrinsically compared to other people who is that lowly. It's that Jesus is just that much more noble than him. That much more worthy. The people think John might be the Christ. And John says, you're not even close. You don't understand how great the Christ is if you think that I might be the Christ. Zero comparison. Not because John is nothing, but because Jesus is that much greater And so John says things like this in John 1.30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I. Why? For he existed before me. Jesus pre-existed John. You say, well, uh, okay, sure. But uh, John, we understand, was born first. So in what sense did Jesus exist before him? Well, he existed before him because he has always existed. And this makes him not only greater as God, 
but also more noble and more worthy as God the creator, not just as a coming prophet or even savior. So he's more worthy than John. And then thirdly, and we're going to spend some time here unpacking this, John says he has a greater baptism than John. A greater baptism than John. Now, this is not exactly the kind of thing that you would... uh, talk about and compare every day, you know, like uh, this is the kind of thing kids fight on the playground and say, you know, my dad can beat up your dad or, you know, my game is better than your game or that kind of thing. Can you imagine them saying, you know, my baptism is better than your baptism? That's not really a normal point of comparison. And yet it's very significant because John came as a baptizer. This is what he did. And now he says, the very thing that I am most known for, the thing that I am the expert at, Someone else has a better one than me. Now, this is always discouraging on a human realm, isn't it? When you're going, well, this is the best skill I have. And then I look around and I see a thousand people who can do this very thing better than me. John, on the other hand, wasn't bitter about this. In fact, he is just coming in preparation for this. He understands his whole role is to prepare the way for one who is better at him than the thing that he was known for. And yet, it's not just that his baptism was better. It's better because it's different. It's different. Now, Jesus did come baptizing in water after John. And we learn this in such places as John chapter 3. Jesus began baptizing disciples with water. But that's not what's in view here. He's saying, I baptize with water, but that's all I've got. That's the only means by which I baptize people. Jesus has something else. Two things, in fact, he says. The Holy Spirit and fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John was asked in John 1, 25, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ or Elijah nor the prophet? And his answer is basically, I'm just doing something external. But there's something else that's not just symbolic. There's something else that Jesus is going to do which is effectual. It's a different kind of baptism. It's not just an outward symbol, but it's something that does something. It has a real effect. And so John says, I use water, and Jesus uses the Holy Spirit and fire. This is a unique role that he and he alone will have when he comes. So what does it mean then? What does it mean? Well, there are many different views on what this means, baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism with fire. Um, And some would even take those to be basically the same thing or two parts of the same thing. It is a common teaching over the past hundred years or so that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is sort of an extra thing that happens that believers should seek after they have become Christians um, and that is something that must be uh, gone after, that it it must come to you as an additional thing above and beyond your conversion and that not every Christian has experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit, that basically this takes you to another level of fellowship with God or of Christian power or ministry ability or something like that. Along with this, very often, these two things are taken as one and the same, that the Holy Spirit and fire basically means the Holy Spirit who acts like a fire or who comes with fiery energy or who empowers you, kind of like a fire would burn through things. In other words, to baptize you with the Spirit, according to this way of thinking, is to baptize you with a sort of fiery energy. I want to argue that both of these things are not the case. And I want to try to show you from this text and from others. 
that uh, fire has almost nothing at all to do with spirit baptism, except as a one-time picture on the day of Pentecost, and that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift that Jesus Christ pours out on all believers, on all believers at the moment of their conversion, once the day of Pentecost has come. That this is not some distinct work of God after a person has become a Christian, but this is something that God does when a person comes to Christ that then results in them being indwelt by that same Holy Spirit so that they instantly are at once and forever indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so baptism of the Spirit we'll consider first. The baptism of the Holy Spirit then, I'll just lay out for you what I would argue that it is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift that Jesus Christ pours out on all believers once the day of Pentecost has come. It results in the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a believer. And except for some rare events that we'll look at and the progress of the gospel spreading to new categories of believers in the book of Acts, it is not a secondary work after conversion. So on the universality of this, on the fact that all believers have been baptized by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized by one Spirit. Hold that verse in your head or make a note of it because we'll come back to it later. Uh, there was a promise in John 7, that Jesus would give the Holy Spirit to all believers once he was glorified. That is, once he is raised from the dead and once he ascends to heaven. John 7, 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you look with me in the book of Acts, and we're going to go here to Acts in a few places because um, although this doesn't come until uh, quite some time later, we won't have the chance to address this at any point in the, directly in the book of Luke other than right here. So we'll just tackle this right now. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 33. On the day of Pentecost, they, uh, the apostles were gathered in the upper room and the Spirit of God came upon them. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They're shocked. They have this ability now to speak instantly in a real language that is then understandable by people who spoke that language. And it says that there is understandable content. Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So the content is understandable, not only that, but because they don't even speak the language themselves or don't understand the language themselves, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 14, that people who speak don't necessarily have the ability to translate. The content must come from God as well, which means that these are prophetic words of divine revelation, not even always understood to the person speaking them, but real content. 
in a language not previously known but now instantly able to be spoken by the one who has had this gift poured out upon them. And so you have people mocking, verse 13, saying they're full of sweet wine. Well, Peter explains a whole lot about this and um, you can read through his explanation of how this came uh, as a result of the kind of thing God had promised in the last days. But I want to uh, just look at the explanation of the role of the Spirit in this by looking ahead at verse 33. Verse 33, talking about Jesus. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Both see and hear. He goes on in verse 38 and says, Repent, and each of you be, and here it is, baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. He says the Spirit of God is here. The indication of this having taken place is that the apostles and some with them had these abilities to speak these languages instantly bestowed upon them. He does not promise to all the hearers that they will be able to do that. He only promises the gift of the Holy Spirit who is the one who enabled this in these certain people. But he promises that the Holy Spirit will be given there. And so he identifies the coming of the Holy Spirit in this way, which is clearly the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He identifies that as the same thing as the gift of the Holy Spirit given to believers. Anyone who would believe, anyone who would repent and have their sins forgiven. So this promise is to all believers, but there is a progress here. It only started with Israel. As the gospel spread, it went to new places, and there are certain things that God did in his wisdom which enabled people to understand that everyone is coming into the church on the same terms. So over in Acts chapter 8, the church is persecuted, people are scattered, and some of them go to Samaria. Samaria was a place where people lived who were hated by the Jews. They were half-breeds. Um, they had been unfaithful in many ways. In fact, it was the seat of rebellion against God on many occasions in the Old Testament of turning to idols away from the worship of the true God. But there were people who believed. So verse 14 of Acts 8, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Peter and John. Why Peter and John? These were leaders among the apostles. And it says, They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, some people looking for what the Christian life should look like, um, understandably and yet mistakenly come to a text like this. And they say, well, this must be the way to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They say, you believe, and you're baptized, and then sometime later, someone has to pray for you and lay hands upon you, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. But what you have to understand is, in this case, as we'll see also in a couple of chapters, no one outside of the Jews had ever received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many had believed in the Word of God before, but none of them had ever received this gift. 
So they send the apostles specifically to, tr- to initiate this for the first time, the gospel going to anyone outside of Judea. So they receive the Holy Spirit when the apostles do this, which serves then as a witness to the reality of the Samaritans who were hated and despised by the Jews coming into the church on the same terms, receiving the Holy Spirit just as the Jews did. Turn over with me to Acts 10. In Acts 10, Peter is sent to a man named Cornelius from among the Gentiles. Now you have people that aren't even half Jews. They're just Gentiles. They're non-Jews. How are these kind of people going to be part of God's people? Well, maybe they have to become Jews, right? Or do they? Or maybe they come in, but they're sort of second-class Christians. Is that the case? Peter goes and preaches to Cornelius in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How do they know this? For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? So Peter recognizes they have the exact same gift of the Spirit. So he goes down to Jerusalem, Acts 11, and some people take issue with him. Verse 2, those who were circumcised took issue with him. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And he explains how God had shown him a vision and these things to go up there and We get down to verse 15, and he recounts this part about the Spirit falling upon them. And he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. What's he talking about? Day of Pentecost. Same thing. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Notice here how he makes basically tantamount to each other the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the events of Acts 2. This is all the same thing. The giving of the Holy Spirit to believers, the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, And then the things that happen in the book of Acts. These are all one and the same experience. And he says in verse 18, or look what Luke reports. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Why did he want Peter to witness this? Why did we wait in this case? Why did the Holy Spirit not come upon Gentiles who maybe had believed in some other place? Or why did they not just believe and then the apostles came later? Well, God has someone who could say, the same thing was happening here. The baptism of the Spirit then is the same thing as the gift of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell a believer for the first time and remaining there. And the reason why it came after conversion in Acts chapter 8 is because they wanted to make sure that the apostles were there to actually witness this happening. You can see why that was necessary in Acts 10 and you can understand it in Acts 8 as well. There is one more account in Acts 19 You can read about where the apostles, in fact, we can look there. Acts 19, Paul ran into some disciples. Acts 19, the apostle Paul, in verse 2, he says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. 
John baptized with the baptism of repentance, he said, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about 12 men. What are these people? These are people who understood John's baptism, but they kind of had been left behind in the progress of revelation, had never heard that the Holy Spirit had actually come. This has been going on for 20 years, 15 years. And then all of a sudden, Paul shows up and tells them the rest of the story. God is showing here, again, that there is a transition from this Old Testament era, if you will. Even the work, the message of John the Baptist, to the work of Jesus Christ, who baptizes by the Holy Spirit. Sending the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the reality that he now dwells in them. And to show that it came on the same terms to all. The result is Galatians 3. Where by one spirit, we were all baptized into Christ. We were all clothed with Christ. Jews and Greeks, circumcised, uncircumcised, slaves or free men, male or female. Every Christian enters into the kingdom of God on the same terms. We all are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. None of us has that, uh, that advanced state. None of us is less than anyone else before God. Now, understand... In these cases, the gift of tongues was given in three out of the four, perhaps in Acts 8 as well. It's not mentioned there. But it's given as a sign that the Spirit had come. This would be a very obvious and perhaps the easiest way to prove that something supernatural was going on. People who had never spoken these languages before all of a sudden can speak them with understandable content. That is a gift of God. But it's not that all would speak in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 tells us this. Uh, we just read it, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. But in the same chapter, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 30, all do not speak with tongues, do they? All don't speak with tongues, do they? All don't interpret, do they? All don't have gifts of healings, do they? He says there are only some people in the church who have this ability. We've all been baptized by the spirit, Paul says in, Acts, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, but not everybody speaks in tongues, verse 30. So for those who would say that speaking in tongues is the indication of spirit baptism that simply doesn't align with what scripture itself says in 1 Corinthians 12. Because they are not the same thing. They were only one evidence at the time of many possible evidences of the Holy Spirit baptizing someone or indwelling someone. What then, after all of this, is spirit baptism? It is nothing other than God sending the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to all believers, starting at Acts chapter 2 onward, when he pours out the Spirit on all flesh. Not just Jews, not just certain prophets, not just certain people, but all believers. And we have the Spirit of God permanently, because we were all made to drink of the same Spirit. So this is Spirit baptism. Well, that's only half of what John has to say about what Jesus is going to baptize with, isn't it? Luke chapter 3, he says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but he also mentions something else. What is it? Fire. Fire. This um, spirit baptism, I want you to note, is the part of John's promise that's repeated over and over again when it comes to the work of Jesus. When the actual events happen, the Spirit comes to believers, they never cite both of these things. He doesn't say, well, here is that fiery baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's the baptism of the Spirit and fire. 
Acts 1.5. Jesus says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We read Peter in, first, in Acts 11.16. I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why don't they mention fire? Because that's not what spirit baptism is. There's an absence of anything about fire. In fact, it's only in Acts chapter 2 that fire is even connected in any way with the baptism of the Spirit. And even then, it is only that there appeared tongues as of fire. In fact, it's not even entirely certain that, uh, that the tongues themselves looked like fire. There's a possibility that it actually means that they were spreading like fire. But even if it is, even if they're described this way, this is just they have to appear in some form or another. And so you have this, in this case, it would be tongues, like the shape of a tongue appearing upon them, made out of fire. But there is no indication stated at any point by any of them that this spirit baptism is the baptism of fire. And so one argument against these being the same thing is that the apostles nor Jesus never mentioned fire in conjunction with spirit baptism. But the other argument is right here in the text. Because what does he say? Verse 16, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, it isn't as if John doesn't tell us what fire indicates with regard to the work of Christ. He's already told us. Look in verse 9. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into what? The fire. What does that refer to? Judgment. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with what? Unquenchable fire. The fire in conjunction with the work of Jesus Christ is not the excitement or the empowering of the Holy Spirit, as powerful as he is. It is judgment. It is destruction. This is what he says. How does John describe this? He gives the picture of a threshing floor. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's got this sort of shovel-type fork, and you take all of the the grain, it has been sort of separated, it's been broken loose, the, the shell kind of around it has been stomped out and broken out, and now it's in two pieces, the, the grain that you want, and then the chaff, the, uh, the waste material that you don't want. And the part that you want is heavier than the part that you don't want, so you take the scoop of stuff, you cast it up into the air, and then you let the wind or a winnowing fan blow the unwanted stuff away. And then the other stuff that you want drops back down, and it's there to be harvested and so he says the uh, he's going to clear his threshing floor he's going to gather the wheat into his barn he's going to take the people who are believers he's going to take the ones that he wants he's going to bring them into his kingdom and he's going to clear out everything but the chaff is going to be burned up this is what you do with the chaff you can burn it get rid of it it's worthless it's not good for anything and he says he is going to thoroughly clear this floor there will not be any pieces left only two outcomes gathering into his barn or burning up with unquenchable fire and what he's telling us here is that this baptism of fire consists in complete and decisive judgment jesus is going to come and he will bestow the greatest blessing you could imagine upon believers baptism not just with water but with the holy spirit changing you from the inside out enabling you to please god and to walk with him and to do the things that god says and for unbelievers, on the other hand, he's going to come and he's going to render judgment if they won't repent. And so you have here these two sides of Jesus' ministry. Now, one of them has already begun. One of them, we all as Christians benefit from now. We have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
This happened as a result of Jesus' work at his first coming and in his exaltation. But there is another part of this that is yet to come at his second coming. And Jesus in his grace has delayed and has not yet come, but he will. He will come and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so if you're here and you fall in that category, you might not think of yourself as chaff, but that's the picture. The picture is that which is not the kind of thing that Jesus would want to bring in. The kind of person who would not worship him. The kind of person who would live for yourself and would sin and not repent of it. There's a warning here. But there's a promise if you turn. So, John shows he isn't just a step stool for Jesus to walk upon. But he is the one who is preparing for Jesus. He is there on purpose. He is there to exalt him and to do so gladly. We want to look here now in verses 18 through 20 and find the rest of John's place in the nation. John's preaching, John's preaching of the gospel to the people. John's preaching of the gospel to the people. And I just want to observe a a few things about this. With many other exhortations, it says he preached the gospel to the people. This is really a summary statement of his ministry. In verse 3, we found that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But here, he is preaching the gospel with many exhortations to the people. Many different exhortations. He's not just saying the same words we hear. He is saying, you know, John is preaching this general message. He's preaching the good news, and he's just doing it all kinds of, with all kinds of different exhortations, maybe different individual uh, ways of repenting, fruits of repentance that would describe different people's approach or different people's responses to repentance in a proper way. But I want you to notice um, this phrase here. He preached the gospel. With exhortations. He preached the gospel. Now, think about this because John's message predated the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And there's no indication that he preached those particular concepts. Isn't that interesting? He did preach the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but his message, even though all this hasn't happened yet, is still called preaching the gospel. Why? Because the word means good news. And because as we go along throughout history, the word gospel throughout the scripture takes on a a more and more refined and technical meaning and more specific meaning concerning the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. But it's more than that. It's all that comes with that. In a certain sense, the gospel is only the redemptive work of Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection and what that accomplished for us. But we need to understand that scripture sometimes speaks of it in different ways just so that we don't get confused and think that there are different gospels or that the gospel sort of changed over time. It's not that. It's all part of the same package. Jesus is being announced and John is announcing the good news concerning Jesus. He just hasn't filled in all the details yet and he was bringing this good news to the people notice also he's preaching good news what is the message that john is proclaiming what's the thrust mainly of what john is talking about here it's mostly tilting negative isn't it warning he's talking about repentance and judgment and yet he calls this good news this is not what people think of when they think of good news or grace or the gospel of Jesus. They say, just tell me the good things Jesus has done. Why are you bringing me all this hell and judgment and repentance stuff? Well, John preached the gospel and preached about hell and judgment and repentance because he understood that the good news requires you recognizing your need of it and recognizing that you are in trouble 
unless you do something. But the good news is that you can get out of that by turning from your sins and trusting Christ. It's a good message, but it's a hard message. It's demanding. It's demanding. And unfortunately, other people want to sort of simplify it. And they have these little catchphrases that they'll say. Like, you know, all we are is just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. I understand that in one sense. We're just people in need telling other people in need. But, you know, people in need um, sometimes don't recognize they're in need. People sometimes don't know that they need to eat. People sometimes don't need, know that they need to do something. And so when you tell someone who's not hungry or doesn't think he's hungry that he needs bread and you know where to find it, he might not like what you're saying. When you tell him that he's wasting away because he won't eat food, he might not like that. If your town was slowly being poisoned by a hazardous leak that couldn't be stopped, it would be great news if you had another town to move to, wouldn't it? But would you always want to move? You think you're going to get everybody out of there? Will everyone be willing to give up their childhood home and their connections and make the trek and pay the expense of leaving? No. And will the journey be easy? No. And will things be exactly the same for you afterward? Will there not be some hard changes? Absolutely there will. John's message was good news, but it came with some hardships. And we need to recognize this in our gospel preaching, that it's not just all flowers. There will be hardships that people have to undergo if they respond to this message properly, and that's okay. Because this is the message God gave. And then I want to show you um, one more thing here with this, which is that John's gospel came with exhortations. Exhortations. What is an exhortation? It means you're urging someone to do something. You're urging someone. You're telling people, hey, go ahead here. Move here. Do this. Let's go. You're encouraging people. But not just encouraging like, yeah, you're doing a good job. But encouraging people, you need to move. You need to take action. You need to do something. Note that this gospel proclamation was then more than an announcement. More than just an announcement or a declaration of what God has done. And unfortunately, there are some theologians today who have risen in popularity who go out of their way to stress that the gospel message is basically just this. It is an announcement of what Jesus has done. And they will tell you that if you emphasize an active response to what that is, then you're really missing the point of the gospel. And they say that to focus on an individual's active response to that message is to really miss the gospel. You're just kind of supposed to think about what Jesus has done and what he's done for this new community that someone is somehow now a part of. Is that really the question that John is concerned with? Just announcing what Jesus has done? Does he think that's the gospel? Or does John say, if you don't respond with urgency, individually yourself to this message, you're going to hell. John was not afraid to preach the gospel with exhortations. And he says, I'm urging you, you have to respond, and not just as a group, but as individual people. This was his role to proclaim good news to the people, and he understood that that required exhorting them. You yourself must respond. Don't be deceived by people who think that you're somehow being too pushy or that you're adding to the gospel if you do more than simply state what Jesus did. Because John understood, as Jesus did and all the apostles, that you have to urge people that we must make a choice. We must respond in faith and in repentance. This is... John's message of the gospel with exhortation. Finally, we'll 
just mentioned here, John's persecution for his rebuke of Herod. John's persecution for his rebuke of Herod. He was reprimanded by John because of Herodias, his brother's wife. Well, that sounds bad. Taking his brother's wife, and it's not as if his brother had passed away, and this was some kind of a clean thing. No, they had both left their spouses to marry each other. This was illegal. It was unlawful. It was immoral. Herod um, had been rebuked by this. Ultimately, he would, as we see here, lock John up in prison. Eventually, he would put him to death, not so much because of this, although he did hate him on account of this, but because he was sort of tricked into granting an open-ended promise by the daughter of Herodias. But he um, was reprimanded by John. Sound like there are a lot of evil deeds to talk about. All the wicked things which Herod had done, John didn't hold back. And we find here, really, the... Um, it's a stunning picture because you have all these people coming to John and they're saying, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then you get to Herod and he says, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me to repent. Don't tell me that I have to change my life. In fact, I'm going to lock you up for this. Um, What does this mean for our own gospel understanding? Well, it means this. When we preach the gospel... Um, it's okay to say, you know, I might get some backlash for this. I might. Uh, People like to downplay this. They like to think, you know, it's no big deal to go preach the gospel. After all, it's good news. Look, we all understand that it's a little more complicated than that. It's okay to say, this is the best news ever, but, you know, they might really not like me telling them about their sin. It's okay to acknowledge that and to have to overcome that fear and to do so because they need Christ and Jesus is worthy of it. It's okay to acknowledge this. We don't have to pretend like we're just speaking pleasantries to everybody. And how could anyone object to anything we're saying? Now, that doesn't excuse us from speaking. John did it anyway. But we could at least acknowledge not everyone is just going to listen without some kind of adverse reaction. And so don't be discouraged if people reject you. It's always happened. And this really sets the tone for what's going to happen, even when Jesus comes. Because you would think... Here comes the forerunner. Everybody needs to repent. What happens instead? The nation hardens themselves. And this shows that this is very often the response to the gospel. We as a church need to understand this, just as Luke's readers did. That in this age, not everyone is going to respond the way that we want. This doesn't make the message untrue. This is just the way that it's always been. And one more thing. If you find yourself in Herod's shoes... Understand the danger that you find yourself in. People who have never repented are pictured here by him. When someone brings to you your need of repentance, your need of confessing Christ, you have two choices. You can humble yourself before God and find eternal salvation, or you can double down on your sin and attack the messenger. Which one will it be? By God's grace, it's my hope that all of you here will be those who respond in humble faith. And this is the promise, that he will gather you into his barn, so to speak. He will grant you his Holy Spirit. He will give you the forgiveness of sins, and you'll be eternally his. And this is the joy that we find, even before Jesus comes on the scene, of the many blessings that he will bring to us. So John moves off the scene. Jesus is going to show up, and we will look next time at what happens when he does. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this time today, and thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we can obey and honor you from the heart. 
May we honor you indeed this day as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.